All right, uh, go ahead and find your seat. You know, I actually love this when we, when we pray for people and we see so many people come forward. Part of that is because we believe so strongly in community at our church. 80% of our adults are in a house group. So when we say, hey, have your friends come forward, people have a lot of friends because they're connected with the body of Christ here at, at Renovation. All right, uh, this morning we are resuming our Lost and Found series on the Gospel of, of Luke. Uh, I, I just want to start with a question. Do you remember, or has he faded from your memory already, uh, the crocodile hunter, Steve Irwin? Now, he was amazing, right? It did all sorts of dangerous stunts with just dangerous animals. But here's the thing. When you start to become really familiar with something, what happens for a lot of people is you can let your guard down. And that's exactly what happened in Steve Irwin's life. I don't know if you remember this, but he was only 44 years old. He's out swimming. With a, they were filming something for a TV show. He was out swimming with a dangerous stingray, and the stingray sort of got boxed in. And rather than taking sort of the proper precautions and backing away, because he was just so familiar with it and so used to it, they just kept right on filming. Well, the stingray sort of performed a defensive maneuver, and the stingray's barb pierced Irwin's heart, and he died. 44 years old. The danger of familiarity. And that's, that's really what I want to talk to you this morning as we go through the next part of the book of Luke. Uh, we are now in chapter 4, so we're just going verse by verse through this book in the Bible. Uh, if you're visiting for the first time today, or you've been kind of out for a while, uh, what we've seen so far is uh, Jesus was born. That was great. Uh, and then Merry Christmas. Uh, he, was, he was baptized. Uh, he was tempted by the devil himself. And now we see that he's begun to teach and do miracles and other things around the region of Galilee. Now, if you're not super familiar with the Bible and you're like, where is Galilee? I thought, what, what an amazing time to have a map. Amen? All right. Thank you. Um, so here we go. Here's a map. This is the region of, of modern-day Israel and the uh, ancient Near East. Uh, so here you have uh, the region of Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, right around here. This region up here is called Galilee. You have the, the town of Nazareth where Jesus was brought up. It's the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is, is right around here. So this is where Jesus starts his ministry in the Gospels, up in Galilee. It's not in Jerusalem. It's up here in the northern regions of Galilee. And while he's begun his teaching ministry, we're told that he makes a stop in his hometown of Nazareth. And so he stops by their synagogue for their weekly worship service, which was on Saturday. And we're going to take a look at that story today. Uh, there's a Bible under every chair if you want to follow along. We're going to be on uh, page 834 today. Uh, or you can use the Renovation Church app. You just have Bible and weekly verses. And by the way, could you imagine being there that day? So this is guy that you grew up with your whole life is now supposedly become this famous person who's doing miracles and crowds are listening to him, and he's back to teach. And so you've got to imagine the synagogue is just packed that day with people who are intrigued about what Jesus is going to say. So here's what happens. This is Luke chapter 4. Uh, we are now on verse 14 in that chapter. Here's what it says. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news, spread about, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Uh, by the way, modern-day Americans uh, hear this. It, the Bible just told us that Jesus had the spiritual discipline of going to weekly worship uh, every week. 
That's just an important thing. Jesus, our model, went to church every week. Okay, he stood up to read, and the scroll, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you'll quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown. So they're starting to get a little bit more bitter now. You you see, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel... In Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Look at verse 24, if you still have it in front of you. It says, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Not even Jesus. And why is that? It's because there are a few dangerous things about familiarity. And I want to work out today what those are. So let's take, it the first, take a look at the first one. These are poss- it doesn't have to be this way, but these are possible dangers of being too familiar with something. And the first one is this. Familiarity can breed pride. So certainly the story kind of goes from bad to worse, right? But it starts kind of innocently with just some prideful statements. They're just kind of saying, hey, isn't, yeah, but, but isn't this Joseph's son? Like, isn't the guy from, like, just down the road, you know, grew up, third house on the left? Like, pretty sure he couldn't be the Messiah. Like, he's from our town. And you can tell from Jesus' words that they must have been saying other things like, hey, old buddy from the neighborhood, if you're really the son of God, then do a miracle like you did in Capernaum, right? Because, prove it. Because I know you, and I just don't think that familiarity breeds pride. They think they know all there is to know about Jesus. Right? Oh, Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. He's the guy who used to deliver my furniture after his dad made it. Oh, yeah, Jesus. I grew up with Jesus. His voice cracked like crazy when he was 13. And no way that guy's the son of God. And it was, in fact, much harder for the people of Nazareth to believe that Jesus was God's son than it was for people in other towns. In fact, uh, Mark, in his gospel, he says, says this about the story. Mark chapter 6, he said, He, Jesus, could not do any miracles there in Nazareth except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. I can remember thinking about this uh, principle of, of prophets in their hometown uh, about 10 years ago. I'd been a youth pastor for just a few years at that time, and the youth group that I was leading had 
grown to about 200 kids or so, and I was, I was approached by a, a pastor from my hometown, and he asked if I would be interested in, in coming on staff at his church, uh, maybe doing some teaching and some other things. And it's a great church, and I was thinking about it and praying about it, but I just remember the Lord bringing this scripture to my mind. And so eventually I told him no, because I was just convinced that I would, I would go back home, and I would stand up, and I would preach the word, and I would bring the heat, right? And then the people would say, oh, cute. That's, that's Mike and Vicky's boy. We remember when he used to fall off his bike right in front of our house. That was so cute. Right? No prophet is accepted in his hometown. See, when things become too familiar for us, we tend to just suck the spiritual power right out from it. Now, let me show you one of the ways that we uh, fall into this trap, especially as just kind of modern-day Americans in the information age. Uh, so, for example, uh, we read the Bible uh, to our kids every night. We just have like five different children's Bibles, and we just kind of rotate them. And the other day, I caught my kids saying what I believe is one of the most dangerous things ever for a Christian to say. And so I just, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I just stopped them right in their tracks. You want to know what they said? They said, I know that one already. I know that one already. These are five of the most dangerous words you can say as a Christian. See, as modern-day Americans, we're just obsessed with the new, with the innovative, with the fresh, with the novel. Like, let me ask you something. How many of you, when you read or you hear the story of the Good Samaritan uh, or the prodigal son, you just say to yourself, oh, yeah, 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 whatever, I know this one already. We do this all the time. Our familiarity breeds pride, and we think that we, we know all there is to know about this particular part of the Bible or about this part of God's character or what have you. That's not what the Lord wants from us. I met with a guy the other day who's around uh, 70 years old. He spends an hour every day, 60 minutes every day, just studying the scriptures, breaking them down in his notes. Right? And you look at that guy and it's like, you don't think he knows the story of the Good Samaritan? Of course he does, right? And yet he'd probably tell you that he's only scratched the surface of what's in God's word. He wants to know it more. But familiarity for most of us actually has the opposite effect. It falsely tells us that we're already experts in religion, right? That's what the people of Nazareth thought. They thought, oh, Jesus, we know all there is to know about Jesus. Familiarity can blind you with pride. This is happening in your life. You know, the Holy Spirit is coming into your room every night when you open up the Bible and he just wants to just speak to you. Just speak to your heart and to your mind. And so many of us are like, oh yeah, I know this one. First Corinthians 13, here we go, blah, blah. Familiarity just breeds pride. The Holy Spirit is here right now in this room, ready to do something dramatic in your life. And some of you already went, oh yeah, I know this one. Uh, Jesus and now there's no prophet is accepted in this. Don't let familiarity blind you with pride. Unfortunately, you keep, you keep reading in the passage and the dangers continue. Here's the second danger, possible danger. It doesn't have to be this way, but possible danger of familiarity. Familiarity can breed indifference. 
right? So you have these people in Nazareth, they grew up with Jesus. Many of them probably knew the stories about Jesus, right? Maybe they knew about how Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem and then how they had to flee to Egypt for a number of years because of King Herod and Jesus was special. Maybe they even heard the stories about the angels appearing to Mary and Joseph. See, they knew the stories about Jesus, but they just didn't really know the real Christ. And I think in modern-day America, there are a lot of people who know the stories about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. I think there are many people even in churches that know the stories about Jesus, but it just never really moves past their head and into their heart. I heard a story recently that happened in one of our house groups this spring. I want to share with you. There was a newer believer who was in her small group, and she was mentioning in her small group that she just loved the song of Reckless Love that we sing here at church. But she said, I'm not really sure what that lyric is about. He leaves the 99. And so her small group encouraged her to look up Luke chapter 15 and just read that story. And so she did right there in small group. And she read it out loud. This story of how God, if he had 99 sheep and just one of them was lost, would leave the 99 and go after the lost one because that's how much he cares about you. And she started to read it out loud to her small group, and as she read it out loud to the group, she started to just cry, just tears of gratitude. And her small group, who had heard that story, right, so many times, oh, yeah, yeah, there's a 91, and there's a one sheep, it's right next to the prodigal son and the lost coin, and yet there's the... As they were sitting there just listening to her reading and watching her cry, they started to get teary-eyed as they saw it again, not with indifference, but with just through fresh eyes. Sometimes I hear people say, you know, if I could just, if I could have just seen Jesus in person, in the flesh, then surely I would be so passionate about Christ. But that's not necessarily true. Goodness, these people grew up with Jesus, and they wanted to throw him off a cliff. Their familiarity, for many of them, it it, it bred indifference, right? Jesus finishes reading the prophecy of Isaiah, and he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is amazing, right? If I'm there, I'm thinking, yes, yeah, drop the mic, Jesus, drop the mic, right? And they're going, yeah, uh, I don't know. You know, uh, we kind of grew up with him. He used to sit right here, right next to me in synagogue, so I, I just... I don't know. I don't really think he's anything special. And see, for some of you, the very fact that you've already heard about Jesus a thousand times, ironically, can actually be very dangerous to you. Because you're just not hearing it with fresh ears anymore. When we bring the gospel to Rwanda next week, so many will hear it for the first time. They're just going to listen attentively. But for so many of us, we've heard so many times, you're actually just breeding indifference in your life. Is that you right now? Have you become just indifferent to Jesus Christ? Like When I tell you that Jesus is so incredibly in love with you, he just never stops smiling about you. Does that do something to your soul? Or has familiarity just sort of caused those words to bounce off your heart? When I tell you that heaven is real, that life is short, and that judgment will indeed happen, and I hope you let Jesus save you from the fires of hell, 
Does that cause you to sit up straight? Or is familiarity just sort of bred a shoulder shrug of indifference in your life? Familiarity and repetition, they're not supposed to do those things. Right? They're supposed to help us. Let the words sink in even deeper. But our hearts are often hard. They're wicked. And instead of rejoicing in these truths that we already have, we just constantly crave these novel and lesser truths instead. Never stop being amazed by Jesus. Never stop being amazed by Jesus. And there's a final danger of familiarity when, it, when it's not handled properly. And this is the biggest one. And this is one you might be familiar with. Familiarity can breed contempt, anger, disapproval. Right, so as soon as Jesus really starts to challenge the people of his hometown, they just can't handle it. Right, so starting in verse 24, he says, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And then he starts to give them examples from the Old Testament. He says, kind of like how the prophets Elijah and Elisha, right, they ministered to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. It was the widow of Zarephath and Naaman, the, Syri- the Syrian. And why did they do that? He says, because there wasn't enough faith in their own hometowns. And the people of Nazareth, they're not having this, right? Not from their hometown boy, Jesus. Right? Maybe from some other guest speaker, from someone else, but not from hometown boy. And they try and throw him off a cliff. Familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, I saw this played out uh, a lot when I was a, a high school youth pastor. And one of the things I would see as a dynamic a lot between parents and teenagers is parents would say something to their teenager about how they needed to change their life. Hey, you got to work on this. And they could say it to their teen 25 times, and the teen, who's so familiar with their mom or dad at this point, is just going to say, whatever, right? I I don't need to hear that. I don't care what you say. And then what I would see in youth group is that same teen would go to youth group, and their hip, cool, 25-year-old volunteer youth leader... Right, would come and they would say verbatim the exact same thing to the 14-year-old. They'd say, hey, I think you need to work on this. And the teenager would say, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm going to get started on that. <laughs> uh, parents, this is why you, you need to have your kids in youth group, uh, by the way. Familiarity has this way of just breeding contempt. When someone that we really know challenges us, challenges us in our lives, we just have, I think it's our sinful hearts. We have this way of just saying, and who are you to say that to me? And, and your familiarity with Jesus, like the people of Nazareth, may, I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, may actually cause you to bristle at the claims of Jesus Christ. Where we get so used to him and his teachings, it's sort of like the teenager to their parent we somehow start acting with contempt when we're challenged by God or the Word of God. Uh, The great Charles Spurgeon used to say that for many people, Jesus sets his demands too high, and he sets his view of human righteousness, how good you are, too low. And we don't like either of those. So I stand up here, and I, I read to you from the Bible that Jesus demands absolutely everything from you. Right? He, he wants your whole life. All of it. Your heart. He wants your schedule. He wants your finances. He wants your thoughts. He wants everything from you. 
There's, there's no part of you that you should be holding back from Jesus Christ. No compartment, no aspect. And yet for so many of us, it's like, that's too much. The demands are too high. Why do I come at the other angle and I, I read the Bible, we read the word of God, and I tell you that you are a miserable sinner. And there is absolutely nothing outside of faith in Jesus Christ that you can do to save yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good deeds. Your good deeds are like filthy rags to God, the Bible says. They're not good enough. And we feel like, oh, don't say that about me. We feel like as if Jesus and God talk about us as if we're too low. The demands are too high, and he talks about us as if we're too low. And really what our sinful hearts want is like something in the middle. Like lower the demands a little bit and say a few nicer things about us and just meet somewhere in the middle. And I will tell you something. Most churches, over time, actually land somewhere in that middle. Because right? pastors grow tired of members coming to them saying, I was offended when you said this to me, or you challenged me on this. And so what happens is we settle for the lukewarm middle. We settle for looking like the people of Nazareth. And so church people all over America come to church each Sunday hoping to hear something in the middle, right? Like another entertaining story, right? And better yet, an entertaining story with a fresh angle that they've never heard before that hopefully ends in a laugh and not a challenge. See, in our familiarity, we don't want to hear that we are miserable sinners, who need to turn our lives over to Jesus Christ. I just want to tell you something. You keep coming to this church, uh, we're just never going to teach out of the middle. That's just not who we are. Even if the old familiar claims of Jesus make you uncomfortable. Why? Because I, I just, I'm so desperate for you to have the joy of really following Jesus. And you can't get that when you're living in the middle. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you truly surrendered your life to him? I didn't say, do you go to church or not? I didn't say, have you read the Bible before? I didn't say, have you prayed before? I said, do you know Jesus? Have you really surrendered your life to him? Are you saved? What's so fascinating about Luke chapter 4, there, listen, there are plenty of passages in the Bible that we can go through and we can teach, and we're talking about, okay, if you're hearing about Jesus for the first time, uh, surrender your life to him. This is a passage, Luke chapter 4, that's talking to people who've been hearing about Jesus their whole life. But they haven't surrendered to him. Have you really done that? Do you really know him? Have you given your life to Christ or have you just been kind of hanging around his hometown? Some of you have been sitting even in this church for years and just kind of playing around in your head, but you just haven't let it hit your heart. So I'm going to say this as plainly as I can, whether it's offensive or not, and I, and I want you to hear it like you're hearing it for the first time. Not like, oh yeah, I know, on the cross. No, no, no. For the first time, and not just with your head, with your heart. Can you do that? This is the core of the Christian faith. You and I or miserable sinners. We sin way more than we think we do. We ignore God. We try and do it our own way. We break his commandments. We are guilty 
in almost every way, and it offends God. And what we deserve for our sin is judgment. What happened to our culture that we somehow convinced ourselves that we don't deserve judgment? I will just tell you, as a student of history, this is a new thing. Like, we're somehow above judgment? Like, are we God or what? Like, what's wrong with us? You know, judgment for our sins is coming because God is holy. I'm reading an incredible biography right now about D.L. Moody, who's essentially the Billy Graham of the 1800s. In 1871, uh, Moody was the president of the Chicago YMCA. Uh, He was the lead pastor of a new church in Chicago, and he had just been given uh, a new house in Chicago. All three buildings he fundraised for, he helped build just within the last couple few years. If you know anything about Chicago in 1871, it was the year of the great Chicago fire. And Moody was leaving his church that night when he saw the fire coming, and he was trying to run home to save his wife and children to get them out of the house before the flames reached their house. And he said years later, this is what he was thinking as he was running home. Here's what he says. It seemed to me that I had a glimpse in that fire of what the day of judgment will be. When I saw the flames rolling down the streets, 20 and 30 feet high, consuming everything in its march that did not flee, I saw the millionaire and the beggar fleeing alike. There was no difference. That night, great men, learned men, wise men all fled alike. There was no difference. And when God comes to judge the world, there will be no difference. Every single one of us upon our death will have to pay for our sins in judgment unless you let Jesus Christ pay for them for you on the cross. This is why Jesus came to earth. Not to give you a special boost in helping your prayer request. He didn't come so you could put his name on your coffee cup. He came because we deserve fire and judgment for our sins, and he wanted to rescue you. He's so in love with you. He wanted to rescue you from the fire. And so he willingly gave his life for you on the cross. Have you given your life to him? Can you believe The Bible says that if you do that, you believe that Jesus died for you on the cross, that you will be saved, you will be forgiven. And that doesn't mean just accepting something and going on with your life. If he gives his life, you give your life to him. This is out of the Bible, John 3, 36. Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You'll live for eternity in heaven, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. He hasn't had his sins paid for. Listen to me. It doesn't matter how familiar you are with Jesus. It doesn't matter that your wife is really serious about Jesus. It doesn't matter that you grew up in church. These people in Nazareth, they grew up with Jesus for decades. They looked Jesus Christ in the eye. They had dinner with Jesus, but they did not know Jesus. They did not, in their heart of hearts, believe they hadn't given their lives to him. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Have you truly, have you turned your life over to him? Or has your familiarity with Jesus caused you to mistake your knowledge of him with your salvation by him? See, this is exactly why there's this haunting passage in the Bible. I think it's one of the most haunting verses in the entire Bible. Where it's judgment day, and the people have died, and they're ready to be sent to heaven or hell. 
And they see Jesus. They say, hey, Jesus, 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 we, we, we know you. We even served with you, Jesus. And Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Have you honestly surrendered your life to Christ? Truly in your heart, believe that he died for you and given your life to him. I'm not just talking to those of you that are kind of in a lower spot and you need to kind of get going again. Have you ever given your life to Christ? For those of you that you know, if you were to die tonight, you wouldn't be saved. You'd be headed to the, to the fire and not the gates of heaven because you haven't surrendered your life to Christ. It's not enough to just know about God. The book of James says, even the demons believe in God, and I, they believe that God exists. And I, sh- I assure you, they're not going to heaven. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? If you've been hearing me, even for years, give people an opportunity to do this, and you know that you need to, and you just, you just haven't, give your life to Christ today. Seriously. Do it today. He will forgive you of everything you've ever done. I promise you, he will come into your life. You will never, ever be the same. Ever. Here's what we're going to do. I'm actually going to invite our band back on stage right now. We're going to do one final song. And if, if you're ready to become a believer, and you're ready to give your life to Christ today, to be saved, I want you, at any time during this last song, to walk up to the front, right up here, in front of the stage, and just face the front. I don't care if you're 12 or 82. If it's time to give your life to Christ, and you know you need to surrender to him, then come forward any time during this last song. And don't say, because some of you just said, I need to do this, but I would be so embarrassed to do that. Listen, you're not going to be sentenced to hell and get to hell and say, oh, I'm just so glad I wasn't embarrassed in church that day. If it's time to surrender your life to Christ, then it's just time to surrender. And you start with these first few steps of just walking forward. And so if God has been saying to any of you over these last five to ten minutes that it's just time to really believe that he died for you and give your life to him, to turn it over, that this is why you're on earth, that just any time during the song, I want you to just come forward to the front. I'll stay up here, and then when the song is over, I'll just pray for you, and, and, and then we'll give you some follow-up next steps. All right? All right, so we're going to worship, and if any time you, you know that it's you and you need to surrender your life to Christ today, I just want you to come down to the front at any time during the song. All right, we'll worship.